This is a Retail Insider Podcast. You're listening to a special edition. Welcome, everyone. This is the Retail Insider Podcast. I'm Craig Patterson. I'm joined here with two special guests. We've got Peter Wolford. Uh, he's a retail trade professional and a lobbyist and researcher for years uh, and as the president of Claremark Consulting. And we've also got Stephen O'Keefe, who uh, is a consultant in the retail space, advising uh, retailers and vendors in the area of risk management. All of this comes under the umbrella of his company that he's president of, Bottom line matters, which uh, pretty much is a company which uh, looks at retailers and their bottom line. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Today, we're going to have a bit of a conversation around uh, retail and this, what we can call almost an awakening. We had a situation where we've had this pandemic, it's shut things down. And uh, now we're coming back and saying, while you were away, Things have changed, including the consumer. And this is going to be part of our discussion today. So let's get into it here. Stephen, do you want to lead off? Sure. Yeah. You know, the while you were away expression kind of wraps this whole thing up. There's retailers who this week have reopened and uh, in some cases, uh, others will reopen in two weeks time. Um, but everybody's staggering their reopening. And I think when um, this pandemic is uh, over and done with, uh, whether there's another one on the heels of it uh, or whether it lingers is uh, is kind of irrelevant um, at this point because I think what we've done uh, or what the consumer has done is uh, demanded things of the retailers that many retailers have been able to kind of conform to. They, they've changed their model. They've either gone online, they've had a better presence online. Um, and I don't know that uh, we will ever get back to retail as it was. I think it's it's evolved. Um, so it is not necessarily uh, a disruption in the retail space. And I think for five years, we've been talking about, you know, this idea of disruption. Um, but I think disruption in, in that case was maybe a hurdle. Um, maybe it was uh, new things that the retailers were, were trying. Um, but what we've had now is is a is a complete uh, change as a result of, of course, COVID nineteen, but also as a result of the changing um, shopping patterns and behavior of the consumer because uh, they've had to uh, for whatever reason. But what we found is, in some cases, they like the difference, and so some retailers can't go back to the old way of, of selling. And that's, that's part of the discussion that we're going to have today. I would, I would go even further than Stephen Craig. Um, I'd start by saying to all your listeners, go and look at the most recent StatsCan data, uh, but look at the raw data, not the seasonally adjusted. Where the consumer is spending their dollars today is dramatically different than where they were spending them this time last year. Hard lines have held up through the pandemic very well. Soft lines have had real trouble. But equally, looking into the future, is that pattern likely to, to, to sustain itself? Almost certainly not. Uh, then look at how customers are approaching the buy decision today. Their path to making a buy decision, again, is, as Stephen said, is dramatically different than it was a year ago. And is it going to stay here? Is it going to change further? I think almost certainly it's going to change profoundly, even from what we know today. Uh, we were talking just in preparation for this a little bit about how the power has shifted from the from the retailer to the customer. 
And Stephen was making, I think, Stephen, you might want to pick up a couple of those points here because they talk directly to who's driving this train today. And, and, and yes, things have changed. There's, if there's not a new engineer in charge of the train, by golly, the engineer sure has taken control now. Yeah, so what I was referring to, and um, you know, I've been in retail in one capacity or another for well over uh, 30 years. And I know, Peter, you've been studying retail for over three decades yourself and uh, have really been involved in uh, the numbers and understand some of those seasonally adjusted numbers that you're talking about. So to, um, to look at those numbers and uh, create a story out of it, I think is is important not just to to look at the numbers i think one of the important ones that we looked at was sporting goods and how sporting goods had a decline in sales uh, for a three-month period but that was on the heels of this massive spike through the end of the summer uh, to where you could not go into a retail outlet or online and buy some of the sporting the the sports equipments that is recreational type of stuff like a like a stand-up paddleboard they just weren't available some retailers had already advertised them, but couldn't get the stock from the manufacturer because the manufacturer sold out. They sold all their inventory and couldn't build them fast enough. And so you had kind of uh, a, a lag of um, uh, this number to where you look at it and, and uh, you know, maybe December, November says uh, sporting goods is on the decline. No, it's not. Everybody's bought everything up. There's just nothing available. And so those numbers are a function of a lack of inventory. Uh, in that particular case. So, so I think, you know, the, the whole point around the consumer being in the driver's seat, um, for, for a long while, retailers were building their, whether they were building an online site or whether they were recreating the environment of a, a bricks and mortar, um, store, um, they were in the driver's seat and said, this is the way I am going to create my store. That's going to be uh, different from other stores, but hopefully inviting to a lot of customers to where now the customer is in the driver's seat. And if they choose to continue with ordering online and doing curbside pickup, they're in the driver's seat. That means the retailer needs to, even, even if the, the pandemic is over, need to adjust and understand that's the shopping behavior that you now have to, uh, to appeal to. So I think... Uh, you know, that was the discussion around the, the consumer having a yeah. lot more say in how they're going to shop because they're spending the money where they want to now. And that, that extends through the whole retail practice, doesn't it, Stephen? It's not just about doing multi-channel, as was talked about uh, during the, 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 the teens years of the new century, but it goes to, do you have exactly the same return policy for in-store, curbside, buy online, pick up in store, uh, deliver to home? Do you have exactly the same uh, phone number or website that a customer can go to for product advice, for problems with assembly or with a, with a performance problem? That The customer expects all of that to be integrated today. The, the other side too, you, know, you, you were talking about the difficulty in finding a product. We were looking for a swimming pool for my grandchildren, our grandchildren last summer. We looked all over the world. And the customer can do that today. So Canadian retailers don't have it. I can look at big U.S. retailers. If they don't have it, I'm quite comfortable going to a Chinese retailer, to an Indian retailer, to a retailer in Europe and getting it there. And with, uh, with distance and time being shrunk the way it has, 
your customer has options that they've never had before. They're getting service offerings that they've never seen before as well, because many of these foreign retailers have really thought this through and really integrated their operations in a way that North American retailers, many North American retailers, aren't quite yet at that level. Yeah. They also have the information, don't they? You're talking about shopping uh, and, you know, um, we made a comment about uh, this earlier, um, but it uh, you you're able to um, shop online and do your research, but you're able to also look at the technology and all of the specifications to the degree that, in some cases, the consumer is walking into a bricks and mortar store or shopping online more informed than the sales associate. They they know what they're looking for. They they uh, they know the specifications. They know the technology behind it. Uh, they're much more informed than uh, the sales associate in some cases. Yeah, and that's a, that's a challenge again to replicate into your stores and into your into your site uh, all of the the technology and knowledge that your company stands for, and all the knowledge that you stand for. Particularly if you're a, a firm that's operating outside the weekly track. If you're selling week-to-week goods, the customer is very familiar with those products and probably doesn't need a lot of assistance. But if it's an episodic purchase, particularly if it's a hard line, or even if it's a soft line that you don't often purchase, customers often want some service and advice to go with that. They will gather that online and then uh, then expect you as a retailer to top that when they go in. They expect some value added when you put your margin on top of the cost of goods sold. And if it's not there, they start to say, well, why do I need to go to a retailer? Why don't I just buy from the brand holder? In the case yeah. of national branded goods, for example. And that's, a, that's another side that we, we had talked a little bit about. Retailers face a whole new set of uh, competitors today who are their, are their vendors. Uh, many national brands today are setting up websites where they sell directly. Yeah. And at that point, then the retailer has to give the customer a very good reason why they should shop with the, the retail firm rather than the, the manufacturer or importer of that particular product. So a whole new set of, of very strong, internationally oriented competitors have joined the, uh, the market. That's been trending for a while, but again, in the last year, it's really picked up speed. So there are a lot of things, a lot of moving parts that have changed. Yes, it is. You know, there's, there's another side to... Oh, absolutely. If you're, if you're a multi-brand retailer relying on national brands today, you really need to think very, very carefully about what your future looks like. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things that I had looked at before I finished my, my research was the number of retailers now that are moving to private label. That trend has, has accelerated quite dramatically over the last 10 years. And I think we're going to see that accelerate even more as a result of what's happened in the last year. Yeah, like that's a huge threat to multi-brand retailers. That's probably where the story starts. Again, you know, that that talks to Stephen's point about retailers seeing this all about operations and and how you do your business. And I think that uh, the smart retailers are saying, wait a minute, if I'm going to stand out and have something that really means something to my customers, I've got to be unique, special, mm-hmm. better than, um, more relevant than you can get anywhere else. And that, that takes you directly into the private label world. What's driving that? My, my assumption would be um, higher margins and exclusivity, but that's just my guess. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, the aspect of margin is important as well. There's uh, 
obviously uh, with good margin comes uh, all kinds of um, good things to a retailer that have more operating expense available to serve the customer better, um, to uh, build better stores and buy better fixtures. And so it's uh, it's important to find margin where you can get it. And if you can put a product up, uh, and I won't mention any specific products or brands, but if you can take uh, ABC item and uh, compete against that with your own private label made by ABC company, um, but sold for a, a fraction of uh, the um you know, the, the retail price of, of the national brand and still make better margin from that, um, then this, this works in your favor. In a lot of cases, the, the consumer can see both of those products side by side. There may be a change in the ingredient for your private label, maybe a little bit, but this item is exactly the same to the consumer as this other, but it's uh, 50 cents cheaper. So why wouldn't I be trying to save the money over here if it's a consumable product? Now, when you get into luxury brands and, and some things that are identifiable, people want to have the logo. So it's a little bit different. You can't take a, uh, in this case, I'll use Nike because I could do that. You, you can't take a Nike brand and say, well, this is my private label Nike brand. You can't do that. Nike owns that trademark. So it's a little bit different in that particular case. But for a product that we consume, um, a lot of times it doesn't matter the name that's uh, that's on the bottle that you're putting on uh, as a condiment on your sandwich. I th- I think you're right for the uh, for the uh, <laughs> consumable items that are done yeah. on the weekly track, Stephen. Uh, it's not just luxury and national branded logos that that retailers need to compete with. On the other side, I would say it's as I said, it's essentially those items that are infrequently shopped, and those tend also to be items where there's a fair amount of ego and personal involvement engaged as well. If I'm uh, going to buy a tool, a toy, yes. um, a, a, person, a piece of apparel, um, it says something about me. And in order to compete with those national logos, the retailer's got to have something really special. And you can, especially if those national brands are now selling online, you, it's, it's tough to sing louder and brighter and more interestingly than the national brand owner. So as a retailer, your challenge will be now to somehow compete with them. And I think a lot of companies are responding to that by going towards private label and finding exciting new products, which are not covered by national labels, but which which are relevant to the customers that they serve. Yeah, and being able to keep those yes. products. Uh, and you mentioned even the comparison, like I'm just thinking Simon's department store, you know, large format fashion retailer again, but 80% of the product is private label under their own brands. And then they bring in other designer brands. You compare the two and uh, the I say, you know, maybe an $89 pair of pants might not be something that someone would be willing to pay for if they were, say, you know, going to H&M. But when you're at Simon's and you see the $89 pants and then you see the $890 pants on the rack over, the $89 pants look like a really great bargain. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned H&M, Craig. There's a company that sells at a very popular price point, and it's all private label. 
Yeah, same thing with Zara. There's yeah. there's so many. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, brands are standing out now like they never have, uh, and that's where you know we. I think in decades past, many people uh, discovered brands through multi-brand retailers, whether or not that was a department store or a grocery store or whatever they were shopping for. And now, because the brands can stand on their own, be it in a shopping center or online, etc., um, that multi-brand doesn't quite have the same power. Uh, to, to, I think to probably to put it even lightly. I, I don't know if you want to go into this, but. If you take a long-term historic perspective on this, you talk to retailers who operated in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even the early 80s. The model was the national brands came to the retailer and said, here, sell this, it'll work well. And the retailer accepted that. Uh, Somewhere in the 80s, that started to shift and the retailer said, you know, we know our customer better than we think you do. And therefore, we will take this from you, but we will not take that. Or we need things redesigned a little bit to suit our specific customer. Um, Stephen's old employer, Walmart, was one of the most powerful in, in making that shift. And so through the 80s and into the 90s, the shift in terms of vendor relations shifted to the retailer. What we're now seeing is it shifting back. And that shift back this time is very much driven, as Stephen said earlier, by the customer. They are in control. And they're saying to both the vendor and the retailer, no, 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 no. You guys don't understand. You can talk between yourselves all you want. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to buy, when I'm going to buy, and what I'm going to buy. Yeah. Wow. And, and it, you know, it, uh, it's interesting because people are looking for different ways to, to sell, obviously. Um, and it's not necessarily the traditional bricks and mortar that's going to uh, survive on its own. It may be that with a combination of e-commerce and that e-commerce may not be an online store. Um, it could be selling uh, as an ad in between uh, a video game or uh, somewhere else where uh, their target audience, the consumer, just happens to be gaming. And it might be a break in the game that it's a pop-up and you can buy something. And that um, vendor may not ever have a bricks-and-mortar store or sell through bricks-and-mortar. They could sell through the gaming system. And so you have to look at where is your target audience and how do you reach them? We talked about one retailer earlier. And again, I don't know that we want to necessarily talk about a retailer who's uh, been in trouble and point the finger as to why they were in trouble. But this was a retailer who appealed to a certain audience over time, a certain uh, customer base who uh, have grown older. And uh, the retailer continued to sell to uh, that generation of a you know, uh, uh, 16 to 24-ish range uh, where the original customer is now in their 50s or their 60s or even their 70s. Um, but they've never really changed, although the up-and-coming consumer has. Um, they've always appealed to the consumer that was and baby boomers who can look back as to how they shopped. Um, they don't shop. Uh, they didn't shop back then the way they shop now. So um, this retailer didn't adapt to the environment. And what it ended up happening is they they are likely going to shutter their doors. So um, you look at uh, retailers uh, like that who have not adapted to the uh, changing consumer behavior. And I think that's the aspect of the while you were gone, uh, this is what happened because over the last year, we have probably had more change in behavior of 
consumers and just everyday people than we ever have in, uh, at least in my generation, in any one year. Um, everything has been disrupted. I am doing a um, podcast with uh, two other people um, uh, from my office at home. Uh, we haven't, while we were preparing for this, the three of us did not meet face to face. We weren't in a restaurant talking about how we're going to do this. It's all been remote. It's all been using technology. And I can't see that going away. This will be my office for the next 10 years. Yeah. yeah. You, you said an interesting point that I wanted to follow up on, Stephen. You talked about communicating to the consumer about who you are, what you have to offer. Uh, I would go back to a comment one of my members made some years ago. They were a mall format retailer and decided to go into power centers, into the pads at power centers. And they were the stores were, were, were they thought, better merchandised. They had a little more space, but they were really struggling. And they realized that in a power center, you have to make sure that your customer knows you're there. You have to put your hand up and say, wait a minute, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm here now in your neighborhood. And I have a new and great and broader selection of merchandise than I did before. Shopping's easier. And it's better because we've got more to offer you and more divert, more, more of our range. And they, they had to go back and completely rethink their whole merchandising, marketing, and selling strategy just by a change or by the addition of power center units into what is was primarily a, uh, a mall type retailer. So it's, you know, that's a measure of the types of changes I think we're talking about here that retailers are going to have to make as we move into the future. This, that change was on the, on the store format side. Well, we're now talking about much more profound format changes and much more profound changes in customer behavior. So how you, how you communicate with your customer, the customer journey is night and day different than when you shut down your stores last, uh, last March. And even though they may That's have been right. open in between at various times, the customer has moved a long, long way and they ain't going back. And how do you find that customer? And, and what I mean by that is, yeah. you know, obviously that retailer, I know which one you're talking about, was, you know, in malls and not really on many streets, but, uh, you know, that traffic that they were able to get was from people passing by as well as some of the marketing that's being done, say by the shopping center or the retailer, but then they move into the power center. Well, you don't have foot traffic. I mean, you have car traffic, but you don't, you don't have as much, you know, walk by foot traffic and then, and then brings the conversation further to online. Um, if a retailer is starting to really focus online, uh, which is, you know, in vogue right now, the big question is how do they generate that traffic? Because you don't have a physical location. You're competing with all the other stuff that's online, which can be anything from someone dancing on TikTok to, you know, another retailer putting out a message and, and Lord only knows what else, you know, at one time it was Donald Trump tweeting and so many distractions. How, how does the retailer uh, get in front of the consumer and, uh, and actually make that sale when they're not say in a high traffic area as they may have been before trying to save rent? I mean, um, it's still very expensive to acquire a consumer online. Yes. Yeah, that, that's the other side of this, Craig, is many retailers that I've talked to over the years have said, you know, if we were coming into the business today as an online retailer, we could not do it. We're essentially subsidizing our online initiative through the returns that we're making in our stores. Um, and again, the last year has put that model of development very much into question. Your stores are shut down and you're now doing most of your business online and you can see that it's going to grow in the future. How do you grow that in a financial sense 
if you haven't got the returns coming in from your stores where you've got enough margin to make the capital investments to get to the new place you need to be. These are, boy, these, I, I'm glad I'm, <laughs> I've said this to former members many times over the years. I'm awfully glad I'm not in retail. It's a, it's a tough, tough business and, and never more so than now. Um, retailers, we can talk blithely about reinventing the, the way you go to, go to market, but that takes a lot of, a lot of money. It takes a lot of capital investment. It takes a lot of talented people. And it's got to be done in a short period of time under conditions of uncertainty. These are, these are perilous times for retailers. Do you feel better now? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it, it is. It's an unprecedented time. And it just seems like things are coming up more and more again you know we're, we're recording this in in february of 2021 we just got notice from you know our local governments here we're, we're in the gta area that uh, in parts of of the province here will be locked down until uh, at least march 8th if, if not longer who knows i mean i think it's getting ridiculous at this point but that's a whole other conversation and i've had many of those <laughs> in the past but uh, but but consumers now really expect to get you know what they want where they get it and i think they been trained uh, amazon you know has really been efficient in terms of its prime i mean it's so easy to order something pay for it and and have it uh, sent over i've got a deliver wait, delivery waiting for me downstairs apparently i just got a, a text message <laughs> and uh, it, you know it, it's it seems like you know consumers now can get whatever they want you can whatever brands they want you said they can you know shop beyond canada and even the united states uh, uh, this is uh, really unprecedented times for retail. And I'm curious, what else do you guys think might uh, be coming down the pipeline here as, as there's this sort of awakening for retail and then retailers have to meet and, and serve that consumer that's changed? I think uh, from my perspective, what um, is missing that has always been something that as consumers we look for is retail attainment. Um, it's the social aspect of retail. And so if you're looking at, um, you know, a lot of retailers who are saying, um, I'm going to reinvent myself after COVID, uh, what do I need to look like? I think that's the aspect that has not yet been um, really uh, looked at in depth is the retailtainment social aspect of it. I know in, uh, you know, when I started out in retail, the, the shopping center um, was an exciting place to go. There was a lot happening in a shopping center. You didn't even have to go and buy something. You just went to the shopping center um, to have fun. And so there's always been this aspect of retailtainment. There could be, um, you know, in, in um, like a Costco, you go for the demos to sample some of the foods and stuff. That's all an, an aspect. Of course, you're trying to sell the food, but from a consumer standpoint, it's it's entertaining. And I think that's what's missing uh, online. Y yes, you can buy whatever you want, whenever you want it, uh, however you want it, and have it delivered uh, wherever you want to pick it up. I mean, that that's true. That is going to happen. And we're seeing the retailers who have not adapted uh, fall off the wayside. But what we're missing as consumers is that aspect of retailtainment. And I'm not sure that we need it, but as social beings, we need to get that somewhere. So I'm thinking that's something that's fallen out of the retail bucket to where, yes, people are still trying to survive and continue to sell, selling online, um, you know, doing all of the things you need to to stay afloat and to stay in business. 
business. But that aspect of uh, retail, that that consumerism, that uh, you know, that thing that actually created retail, that social environment, because it's always been an interaction between two people. I have something. You want something? Let's talk about it. That aspect is gone. It's become very uh, sterile. I, I agree, Stephen. I, I and I think that's a special sauce that uh, traditional retailers gravitating into this new world can can play on. Their stores are 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 not a not a drag. They're a source of possible creative ways of dealing with the, with the future and building that that emotional connection with the consumer. Where my mind was going was in a and and without diminishing what you've said at all, I would say that the other side to that is the shift to mobile. Our phones now are 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 our lives. They're also major entertainment devices. And I think that that again traditional retailers have not yet fully internalized that. Stephen talked to this a little bit earlier when he was talking about the way shopping is done in, in other countries. Um, integrating all of the various aspects of retail from uh, showing the product, providing information through to payment. But you know, you, there's the potential there to put some entertainment value into it as well. And forward-looking retailers are doing some of that, whether it's connecting in through gaming sites, whether it's producing clever little videos of their own. We're seeing some of that already. There's a, the game, there's that potential to build kind of a virtual community using the phone in a way that people could not really connect with through their laptops even through their, their, their tablets as much as it's very much phone. And that phone has become such a multifunctional extension of ourselves that it's something retailers really need to have at the front of their minds as they go into this. Um, it, it's, it is the device through which people interact with the world today. And the more that retailers can make that a genuine social entertainment experience as well as a transactional one, Again, I think the better chance they have of standing out in the crowd. Isn't it fascinating how, you know, the traditional telephone, I mean, I guess it's more of a personal computer at this point that you can hold in your hand and also talk on it, but it's, it's fascinating how uh, technology has changed things. Uh, you know, I, I look at history and, and throughout history, those who have won have had the best technology, uh, you know, whether or not that's through war or through whatever. And in this case, now the technology is being used from a consumer standpoint in terms of, we went from having say computers that people may have shopped on uh, if they weren't going into stores. Now we've got these mobile devices that can do everything pretty much almost uh, and, and um, you know, are really quite powerful if you've got a good one in terms of having memory speed and everything else uh, uh, that can be done. It's, it's, yeah. it's incredible. I mean, I'd love to know what the future is uh, in terms of what we'll be using for tech, tech devices, uh, or, you know, will it be built into our bodies? God only knows what, but it's, uh, you know, the future could, could be very, very interesting because we've, we've moved so quickly into the future. And that's one thing about COVID too, is we're saying that the trends that we were seeing in terms of maybe some of the innovations or at least changes around the consumer were accelerated quite quickly, uh, partly out of necessity. Like, you know, curbside pickup wasn't really a big thing uh, before the pandemic. And now it's, it's very, very common. Yeah. And look at, look at how that's changing some of the stores, uh, particularly some of the large boxes are now going to micro fulfillment centers. They have realized that having pickers in their store is a, is a distraction and an annoyance to their core customer who's actually in the store. And they're now automating a portion of their back area and using it as a mini DC. Um, there's just so many different ways that, uh, that, that the practice of retail is changing before our eyes. 
at a, at a depth and a pace that's just unprecedented. I mean, it's exciting times. It's kind of like jumping off a bridge with a bungee cord and not being 100% sure how strong that cord is. Um, it must be, must be pretty terrifying to be. <laughs> and how long <laughs> it is. <laughs> or if it's, or if it's <laughs> short <God>. enough. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, just really dramatic changes that are, that are coming through in so many parts of this business. Any forecasts, what might come crystal ball? I mean, clearly this would be speculation, but uh, as, as we look at trends and look at the past, because I think that, you know, there's a timeline that, that looking at the past, present can help us see into the future. What do you think we're going to see with retailers, uh, you know, as they try to, you know, compete for the consumer? We've seen online grow. We've seen this absolutely massive amount of online retailers come online that were not there before. Uh, I wonder what the future of retail is going to be. And I, I would start this off by saying, I don't think many of these online retailers that we're seeing popping up are going to be around in two to three years. Uh, that's just my thought because they're not going to be able to get the market share or acquire that traffic. But uh, I'm just curious, any sort of you know opinions, what we might be seeing here? Because again, things are changing very quickly and we don't know what's going to happen. Here's a, here's a thought. Um, and this is, this is, this is above 100,000 feet. We have seen in the consumer economy a steady shift away from purchase of goods to the purchase of services for the last 20, 30 years. So retail has lost share of wallet to a variety of other forms, travel, entertainment, um, online. So the, the sale of goods as such is taking less and less of the consumer's wallet. And I would guess that as customers will come out of the pandemic, the first thing they're want, going to want to do is, I want to go to a restaurant. I want to go and see a show. I want to travel and see my friends and my relatives. And so there's going to be a burst of non-retail service spending. And the, the challenge for retailers will be to surf through that and come out the other side and and be able to, to recapture the market share of wallet they had from before the pandemic. And, and the challenge will be to make sure that you continue to persuade the customer that, that buying things is not a bad idea, that it, it is a, it can give you as much meaning and pleasure and benefit in your life as buying one of these services. And that's a, that's, particularly with the impetus that those services are going to have when we're all finally released from our homes, that's going to be a tough challenge. That would, you know, that's, that's sort of the view from, I don't know, 150,000 feet. Yeah, I, I agree, um, Peter. And I, th I think, uh, so Craig, your question is one that was asked um, in uh, 2013 by a group of 10 uh, retail leaders, CEOs and owners of some very prominent businesses. And uh, nine of them um, took out their crystal ball and said, this is the way the you know, retail is going to look in the future. And one of them um, uh, said it a little bit different. And that was Mario Palazzi, who was the former CEO um, of Walmart. And it was about the evolution of retail. Um, and he said the evolution of retail is going to mirror the evolution of the consumer. Yeah, it's just that simple. You just have to listen to uh, your customer and uh, and see what they're doing. So Peter raised a great point. That is something that every one of my friends is just dying to do. 
uh, is to get out and travel and to meet people and to socialize and uh, to be with other people. Um, not necessarily to go to a store to buy something because they've already bought it and they've figured out a way to get it. Um, so it's a matter of listening to the customer. And another important um, comment that was made by a, a retail leader some years ago, and I, I you know it, it confused me a little bit when he made the comment, but we were talking about a 10-year plan in order to, to appeal to 23-year-old um, uh, market of, of consumers. And, uh, and he said, who are you going to study? And, and the comment was, well, 23-year-olds are going to kind of study 23-year-olds. And he said, you need to study 13-year-olds. You need to understand 13-year-olds in order to appeal to what a 23-year-old is going to shop like in 10 years. It's just simple math. The consumer who is 23 right now is not the same one that'll be 23 in 10 years. And so it's just a matter of understanding what the consumer is looking for. And I keep going back to that that same point, but I guess it kind of just uh, ties into what we're talking about while you were gone. While you were gone, things changed. People changed. People behave differently. So it's a matter of understanding how they behave. And, you know, if it's um, Peter, and this just, you know, off the top of my head, like if, if you're talking about um, an environment where people are going to be traveling a lot, um, does a retailer sell their merchandise through resorts in the Caribbean? Uh, not many. There's uh, usually just trinkets that are sold there. But do you ever look at that as a place, a destination for uh, perhaps selling something that vacationers might want instead of selling it to them here? And having them get on a plane and go to their vacation, what about providing that there? Because I, I'll tell you, I have not been able to buy anything at a resort that I really wanted and forgot to buy at home. Hmm. Uh, it's all been trinkets or something else. So just thinking about if this is what customers are going to be doing is socializing and doing all these things. Should I be appealing to the location that they're going to like a theater, like a restaurant, and uh, maybe selling That's my wares point, there. Stephen. And the nice thing about the technology we have today is that it gives retailers an enormous amount of information about the customers they serve. Uh, particularly when you're selling online, your customers giving you an enormous amount of information, not just by their purchasing, but where they go on your site, how long they stay, what information they collect along the way, how they put it together. You can track that journey very, very well. And yet, not many retailers today do that very well. And there's an enormous opportunity there to get to understand your customer much better in the data that lurk on your own website. Um, you know, I, I remember some years ago, people saying, well, we collect all this customer loyalty data, but it, we don't do anything with it. We pay the customer to give us information and we don't do anything with it. Um, there's, there's even richer information coming off the website today. But uh, I'm not sure how many retailers are using that to really drive the business, both online and in the other formats as well. So again, there's a, there's a great potential there to, to understand that the market that you serve, to experiment with it. Uh, a website is a very flexible plastic environment that you can, you can shift relatively easily. And that gives you the chance to say, well, customer, do you like it this way? Do you like it that way? What if I add this? How, what sort of service do you want to go with this? 
And your customer will tell you, uh, anybody who's worked with websites, and I've done very, very little in this, but anybody who's worked said, the customer tells you almost instantly. I talked to a retailer oh, some years ago. They did a big redesign of their website. They were proud as all get out. They said within 24 hours, they knew their customer hated it, just hated it. Oh, And, and that kind of feedback is instant today. You know far faster than you ever have before whether you're resonating with the customer or not. What you need to have are the tools to, to, to know that and then have the internal systems to be able to respond and correct and, and take benefit from whatever, you learn, whatever your learnings are. So there's, there's enormous potential there that I think many retailers have yet to tap. Yeah, it, was, it was just astonishing. Wow. He said, we um, knew... In fact, we knew within hours of the site going up that, that it just our customers hated it. I mm, wonder what they didn't it like awkward. about it. It wasn't intuitive. Um, it, it, this was, oh, this was probably a couple of website generations ago when, when many companies were still learning. But this was a company that had been online for some time and they were doing a very major redesign that they thought was going to be really cool. And it was cool. It was so cool it wasn't usable. And their customer let them know. Nah. Um, so they, they, they had to scramble back and do a, a significant redesign very, very quickly. But the, the key point here is they have wow. instant feedback from their customers on, I like this or I don't like this. And, and so often you get good feedback. In this case, they were able to course correct a, a bad, bad mistake very quickly because they found out about it so quickly. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us today. I'm Craig Patterson, and we had two special guests here on the Retail Insider Podcast. We had Peter Wolford. Uh, he's a uh, uh, retail trade professional who's been doing this for over 30 years as a lobbyist and researcher and is also president of Claremark Consulting. Thank you as well. Stephen O'Keefe is a consultant in the uh, retail industry, advising retailers and vendors on risk management. You're the president of Bottom Line Matters. So thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And that concludes our exclusive interview with Peter Wolford and Stephen O'Keefe. And just a gentle reminder, we do have an email newsletter that you can subscribe to that goes out every weekday morning. And it has a link to the Canadian news from around the web that we've curated from the previous day, as well as links to our recently published articles exclusive to Retail Insider. If you go to our website, retail-insider.com, you can find the subscribe area towards the bottom of our main page, and then you can get that email into your inbox every morning. Thank you everyone for listening. And until next time.